podcast for language lovers in Australia and beyond, where we share our experiences of language learning with you, as well as the stories of other Australians and a few international guests who love learning, working with and communicating using other languages. I'm Penny. And I'm Beck. And today we have an international guest with us, as well as a local Australian guest, which is very exciting. Um, so welcome to Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gorn. Thanks for having us. Hello, thanks for having us. Um, So for those of you who don't know these names already, um, I'm having a bit of a fangirl moment here because Gretchen and Lauren host a podcast called Lingthusiasm, which is a podcast that is enthusiastic about linguistics. Um, And today we're going to be talking about linguistics and a few other things. Um, But just to give you a little bit of an introduction before we go any further... So Gretchen McCulloch is an internet linguist and the author of the New York Times bestselling Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language. She is the resident linguist at Wired and she lives in Montreal, but also on the internet. Welcome, Gretchen. Hello. Thank you for having me. (laughs) And Lauren Gorn is a linguist interested in documenting and analysing how people speak and gesture. Lauren has a research specialisation in Tibeto-Burman languages and also works on constructed languages, communicating linguistics and the use of emoji. Lauren co-hosts the podcast Lingthusiasm with Gretchen and runs the website Superlingo, as well as being a senior lecturer at La Trobe University here in Melbourne. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks for having both of us. We are pretty thrilled and excited to be talking to you both today, particularly about this topic of linguistics because Beck and I have to admit that we are pretty much <laughs> newbies to the topic in a lot of ways and I think a lot of our listeners are as well so it'd be awesome if we could kind of start right at the right at the beginning and maybe maybe Lauren um, if you could just give us a really quick kind of overview of what exactly is linguistics and how it is different to language learning as such. Sure uh, linguistics is studying the structure of language and how people use that structure. And I say language as in not any one particular language. I mean, you can try analyze how people use structures in a particular language, but linguists are interested in kind of similar structures across the world's languages, ways people do things differently and finding ways to talk about these things uh, that are generally applicable. And so I love it because it's a chance to study how language works in a really big picture sense rather than learning the rules of use of a specific language. And Lauren, do you do you speak other languages too? Like do linguists always speak other languages or how, <laughs> I think how does I think that can be a bit of a common sort of misconception sometimes? There's definitely a um, an interest in and curiosity about other languages. Uh, that drives people to linguistics. So it's not uncommon for linguists to speak uh, other languages. I have pretty conversational Nepali. I have more or less, depending on the dialect, uh, ability to speak the Tibetan languages that I work with in Nepal. Um, And I also, at various times, have had more or less proficiency in Auslan, which is the signed language of Australia, you don't have to speak other languages to be able to analyze their structures, but why why wouldn't you speak other languages if you have the opportunity? Is always my theory. And Gretchen, is your your background in 
languages and language learning and linguistics I know is, is slightly different from Lawrence. What, what are your kind of areas of expertise? Yeah, so the linguistics that I do the most these days is language of the internet, which is not as much of a traditional academic field, uh, although there has been, you know, some some academic research on, on language of the internet for the past few decades since the internet has existed. Um, and sort of looking at one of the things that really interests me is how we use informal writing, because a lot of linguistics is about informal speech. You know, we think of conversation as that sort of gold standard here's here's the the bit to analyze because people aren't as self-conscious about it and there's a sense of sort of oh well writing you know it all goes through editors and so it's not like the real like spontaneous stuff that people are doing but when it comes to writing online people are often doing stuff that's very spontaneous and doesn't go through an editor and has these sort of intuitions and isn't just as sort of rigid and and all ironed out into being the same thing there's a lot more diversity and there's a lot different, more different ways that people use language online compared to what you'd find in an edited book. And I find that really interesting. Uh, you know, I wrote a whole book about it, but uh, I find it just really fascinating to look into. And then sort of, you know, I've also studied many languages that I've had a chance to come across. Uh, I speak quite a bit of French in Montreal, uh, and I find it really interesting living in such a highly bilingual city. Um, and then other other languages that I've kind of <laughs> uh, picked up, you know, I studied a bit of Latin in school and stuff, but you don't really speak Latin, like you're not really learning Latin, <laughs> so you can ask Cicero where to order a pizza. So <laughs> it's hard to say whether, you know, where the line of speaking sort of goes. And if you had to kind of, I guess, be a salesperson for linguistics and kind of give it your your best kind of G up and, and talking to people who might be listening to this podcast now about why should we be looking at linguistics as a, as a potential study area alongside our language learning? I mean, what are the benefits to us as language learners having, having kind of this knowledge of linguistics as we, as we study different languages? One of the things that I think is really fascinating about linguistics is that it's it's just really interesting, especially <laughs> if you already have that interest in language. Like it's just fun uh, because you you realize like oh this thing that I thought was just this weird thing that English did it turns out it's actually in these other languages or like these two languages I didn't realize they had this thing in common but they actually do and like and it sort of gets you. Um, one of my friends called it it's like seeing behind the matrix, right? So you get to see sort of the the hidden patterns that are that are sort of like within and beyond the specific instances of you know. There's a certain amount of grind in studying a language. Like there's a sort of like okay, you got to do your vocabulary flashcards, uh, and you just got to keep kind of quizzing yourself on vocabulary. And for me, the exciting thing about uh, a language is. Partly, you know, the the opportunities to use it when you're like, oh, I got to talk to this person because I had language skills to do so, but also sort of the the realizations of like, oh, this is how this works. Um, and one very concrete example, so the International Phonetic Alphabet, um, which is something that you know people may have encountered in the process of learning stuff because it's often used for pronunciation guides. Uh, and what's neat about the International Phonetic Alphabet is there really is a finite set of sounds that are used for all spoken languages. And there's a finite set of signs that are used for sign languages, but they're not quite as well uh, documented in a nice little chart like the IPA. Um, but there's a finite number of sounds that are used for spoken languages. And if you learn to understand the, the international phonetic alphabet, you've now learned all of them. And so anytime you encounter a new language, whether that's you know trying to start studying a new one, or just you meet somebody who has a name from a language you haven't encountered very much before, you can map that and you can understand that and you don't have this feeling of sort of swimming around in the dark it's like oh no here's this 
here's this list and I already have the the meta list. I can write down this person's name the way they say it so I can say it back to them uh, correctly. Or I can, you know, here's here are these sounds in this language and all I have to do is map them to this existing knowledge. So it's a sort of scaffold that you can map on these existing things to do. Or if you're struggling with saying unfamiliar sounds or perceiving unfamiliar sounds, you can know exactly what's going on in your mouth. So what you need to configure your mouth to do, or you know what you're trying to listen for, uh, and you can practice it in a more deliberate way rather than sort of these sort of vague and poetic <laughs> uh, descriptions of, of how sounds work. So I find it, it very helpful to have a sense of some of the parameters on which languages vary. And that scaffolding goes all the way up from sounds to other features as well. And I mean, part of why we should call our podcast Lingthusiasm is really that we're just genuinely enthusiastic about every topic in linguistics. And part of the enthusiasm for language learning, as Gretchen said, is understanding and appreciating the terminology. And when you have a sense of what is possible and common in the world's languages, it makes it much less intimidating. And it makes it really exciting to go, oh, finally, I get to speak a language that is um, subject, object, and verb final. I've been speaking European languages that have the verb before the object so much, and now I get to do this cool different thing. Or hey, Just a second. The Celtic languages have the verb at the beginning. True. That's this is cool. true. They are particularly <laughs> cool. Um, not, hashtag not all European languages. Not all European languages. That is true. Um, I just, I have, I have to say, I just love listening even to your enthusiasm about this entire topic. And I guess this is why, like, as a fairly loyal listener to your podcast, of your podcast, um, I think the way that you guys make it linguistic, something which I think so many people see is very, very gritty and scientific, um, the way that you make it sound and feel so fun makes me want to do my university time all over again and go back and study linguistics. It is gritty and scientific, but it's also got humans involved. So it's fun and messy and complicated. And when you start working out your linguist brain and training your linguist muscles, you just become fascinated by the choices people make when they speak. And so it's very hard for me to not go back and be like, hmm, why did Beck say listen of your podcast and correct that from to your podcast? And like prepositions, wow, <laughs> they are they are such a fuzzy mess in English. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and I think that it's easy to get a perception of an academic field from sort of the outside if you're trying to read textbooks or you're trying to read papers and say, oh, this is so dry. But the fun thing about, about any academic field that has humans at it is that sometimes those humans go to the pub after the conference <laughs> or during grad school or, you know, just with people that they know from the internet. Sometimes they go to the pub and they just sit around being like, and then this language does that thing. And you're like, whoa. And one of the reasons we wanted to create Lingthusiasm was because we, we, we knew that we enjoyed those types of conversations so much, but they have a certain technical barrier to entry. And so being like, oh, did you know this language is VSO? Um, you have to know that VSO stands for verb subject objects. And it's like the thing that the, the Celtic language is where they put the verb at the beginning. And there's just, you don't want to be pausing that conversation every five minutes being like, what is this? What is this? And so if we could figure out a way to have those conversations without the jargon that makes them inaccessible for a lot of people, uh, you could really get at the same kind of enthusiasm that linguists have regularly in their sort of conversations and <laughs> coffee breaks and, and pubs and things like that. That reminds me of a funny story when, when Beck, you mentioned um, IPA to me and I was like, what? Indian pale ale? What are you talking about? <laughs> um, 
Um, so there's, there's this whole thing at conferences where linguists will deliberately order the India Pale Ale because it has the same acronym as International Phonetic <laughs> Alphabet. Is that true? That's yeah, awesome. yeah. 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 When I went to my first conference as an undergrad, and I was like 20, and we were in the in the pub, and everyone was like, guys, we could all order the IPA. And we were like, this is so clever. No one has ever made this joke before. Oh, good. Oh, good. I feel like I'm like in an in-club now. <laughs> there was the, the Linguistics Undergraduate Society at McGill, where I did my, my master's. They made pins that said IPA more than just a beer. Oh, that's cool. I like yeah. that. So clever, so, so it's, clever, it's such a, an in-joke. Such an in-joke, yeah, 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 you're in, you're in. So with, with IPA, do you reckon as language learners we should put some effort into actually learning the International Phonetic Alphabet as a way to kind of help us with learning languages? I studied undergraduate phonetics with a very intense uh, phonetics prof who made us memorise every single symbol not only to be able to hear them, but also to produce them. And you absolutely don't need to do that to get value out of being familiar with the IPA. And I think the things that are important to be familiar with are the kind of dimensions in which it operates and how the consonants are set out in the table and why they're set out that way and how the vowels are set out and why they're set out that way. And like, I'm very happy to just do a spontaneous intro to the IPA if we really feel like it now. But even just there's what that we have the um, the crash course videos that we wrote with um, crash course linguistics uh, last year. Uh, we put a lot of time into making a more polished introduction <laughs> to those areas. And for us, it isn't about memorizing every single symbol or memorizing everything that is possible or impossible on the chart, but being able to feel comfortable approaching the chart and reading it and figuring out the relationship between those symbols and the language that you're trying to acquire or the um, kind of traditional pronunciation of someone's name that you're trying to master. Um, I'm glad you brought up um, the Crash Course Linguistics um, videos that you guys have created because um, I guess for people like me who, again, may have re like are starting to reassess their all of their study choices um, in, in, in previous times. Um, Learning you know, is lifelong and that's yeah. why we were really excited to do these videos. It's why we're always excited to bring more people into linguistics and you don't have to feel like you missed the boat because you didn't happen to have it at the university you were at. And how many, how many videos are there and what do they cover? So there's 16 crash course videos and they're 10 to 12 minutes long. They have all these beautiful animations that we didn't make, but the lovely <laughs> team at Thought Cafe made because I can't do animation. So we were very delighted to work with professional animators. Um, and uh, and the, the host, Taylor Benke, who, who does this very good performance as the as the host of them and is very engaging. Um, and they're they're really sort of a, quite a quite a thorough survey, if you can combine those kind of oxymoronic terms uh, of your sort of basic topics in linguistics, you know, uh, sounds and uh, words and sentences and meanings and broader social contexts and brain stuff and how we learn, uh, how kids learn language, writing systems, how languages change. So there's kind of something for everybody. And for most of them, you can kind of pick up wherever. There's a few that should have that kind of should be watched in order. But for most of them, you can kind of look at the list and be like, oh, I want to start with writing system, which is number 16. Yeah, I can start here. Um, it looks fantastic. I'm really up to the second module so far, but yeah, really enjoying it. So we'll definitely link through to that in the show notes. Um, there was something I 
listened to you guys speak about in a recent episode on your podcast um, and it was about um, language learning and how all languages are learnable um, mm-hmm. because that's why they exist. And, and People speak them. <laughs> and people speak them, exactly right. Um and it was about how different languages compensate in different areas. So perhaps if, you know, one language has a really difficult writing system, the grammar or the pronunciation might be more simple. And just as I was listening to that, I was just like, oh, wow, that's, you know, just how you were articulating it. It just made so much sense. Um, and I just wondered whether you guys had any more to say about that because I thought it was really relevant to, I guess, where our learners, uh, our listeners are at with their learning that sometimes, you know, if we have chosen a language to focus on that feels particularly tricky in one area, <laughs> it's nice to know that, you know, perhaps the grammar is really simple. So we've actually, you know, scored on that side. I always like to think of this as a bit like physical travel where um, if two languages are close to each other in terms of a lot of similar features, Um, and features that you are familiar thinking about because you have the linguistic terminology from your linguistics knowledge, then, um, you know, the walk from English to German is not as far as the walk from, say, English to um, Binigunwok, a language of Australia. Um, I mean, presuming that you're speaking English in England. It's a very, uh, this analogy falls apart because languages aren't restricted to uh, specific spots in the world but just in a kind of abstract map Um, and it makes it it means that there isn't one language that is objectively hard for everyone um, just as there's no city that you know there are some cities that are further away from a lot of people but like no one city is objectively far away from everyone until I guess we colonize the moon Um, and so it makes it easier to understand why you might be struggling with some features of a particular language you're learning. I think being a bit more generous with yourself is really handy. Um, But, you know, language learning is really a a journey and you have to keep working on it. And if Gretchen wants to improve my very problematic (laughs) metaphor. Well, some languages sort of have a lot of cognate vocabulary that comes for free. You know, I'm currently playing with Portuguese in Duolingo. And I say playing because, like, I already speak Spanish. And so, like, 90% of the vocabulary, I'm like, ooh, the word for apple is masa. That's like manzana. Um, So I have all of these lovely hooks to hang uh, the Portuguese vocabulary on. But, of course, those hooks are sort of hooks that I installed a number of years ago when I was learning Spanish. And I didn't have those hooks. Like, when I had to learn the Spanish word manzana, that's not cognate with apple or pom or any of the other words for apple in the languages that I speak. Uh, So I had to sort of install that hook, but now that I've installed that hook, I can hang something else on it. So, you know, even if you learn a language that isn't particularly close to the one you already speak, think about it as installing a new set of hooks so that you can access a whole other realm of languages that might be related to it. You know, I studied a very little bit of Arabic for a while, and it was an interesting language study because I didn't get a lot of free cognate vocabulary, let me tell you. (laughs) Um, But... It's had such a tremendous influence over a whole bunch of other languages of the region that you have a word like kitab, which is the word for book, that gets borrowed into Swahili and it gets borrowed into like Indonesian and it gets borrowed into all sorts of other languages. Um, and so now you've installed this, this set of hooks, which is your sort of Arabic hooks, and you can trace that influence again. So any, like, 
any language is, is worthwhile, any amount of a language is worthwhile, even though I don't remember very much Arabic, I definitely couldn't have a conversation in it. It's still what I do remember, I find myself recalling and finding interesting and having a deeper understanding. So you don't have to achieve like 100% gold star level fluency, like I'm going to be go become a translator for the UN fluency, in order to still be getting something really interesting and really worthwhile out of the level of understanding you do have. I really like your your imagery of these hooks because that's definitely how I feel about languages that I have learnt and I very much feel that like I have a set of hooks that I installed from French and they entirely helped me with Italian. I just have a bunch of Italian hanging off the French um, <laughs> and then I also have a bunch of hooks installed for German which were like mm-hmm. loosely already populated by hooks from English and I've just started learning some Danish and now I'm just like hanging that all oh, off. Oh great, you're just filling yeah. gaps at this point. <laughs> yeah and and you're right it's such a like I think once you've once you've got one or two you start to realize as you make the connections between different languages that is where you really start to like feel the matrix as you mentioned before like you start to kind of go like whoa there's this whole other world behind it that like everything's interconnected and um and that is like the beauty of, and I of think it's of the world. important to learn when to ignore the hype or the like complaining people do about languages. I remember learning to speak Polish before I had any linguistics and the way it was presented to me and the way other people talked about Polish, I was incredibly intimidated by the case structure and then having returned to it a little bit after learning some linguistics, but then also encountering a language with a case system in Nepali, definitely not as um, much fun in terms of changing uh, sounds, but um, having those hooks installed made it far less intimidating to uh, approach those structures. And that's where I think sometimes getting out of whatever the common discourse around a language is and just trying to meet it on its own merits can be helpful as well. And a lot of our attitudes about a particular language are not related that much to the actual (laughs) linguistic structure of a language. Mm -hmm. And there are things like leftover World War II propaganda for how people think about German. That's that's World War II propaganda. Think about this. Like, we don't say these things about Dutch. They're very grammatically similar. We don't say these things about Dutch because the Dutch were our allies. Like, it's... (laughs) you know the the types of things that people say about a language are not necessarily things that have a basis in reality yeah or the things people don't say like the other day Gretchen when we were talking about French and you were like French is essentially a diglossia like as in the way people speak and the way people write are basically just two different languages because of all of the historical change and I just I've never learned French formally but I have done enough like cafe French for it was just a light bulb moment for me where I was like oh yeah that that has been getting in my way and it's nice that someone actually like put that out there because French just gets way too much like standard pedagogical French just gets way too much good press. Right and it's it's weird like when when you learn French in school they're teaching you like the formal French the written French and then you go to a cafe and you can't talk to people and you can't order a sandwich and you think something's wrong with you and what's wrong is that they just haven't taught you the spoken variety because nobody (laughs) thinks nobody in French thinks that's worth teaching because they all get taught the written variety starting when they go to school at such a young age. They don't think the spoken variety is like even a thing, even though it's totally a thing because they're all doing it. <laughs> uh, like when I moved to when I moved to Montreal, I had to like rewire my French and I had to learn, especially with French. Here's your pro tip for French. Um, uh, 
French has a different word order in speak spoken French than it does in written French. And in spoken French, the word order is topic comment. So you have to foreground uh, the topic of the sentence and then do other stuff with it at the end. Uh, so the example that I have from the, that time when I went to the farmer's market in Montreal and I was trying really hard to buy rhubarb, but it wasn't in season yet. Um, so I asked a lot of vendors <laughs> if they had rhubarb yet. True story. <laughs> uh, is when I would say, est-ce que vous avez de la rhubarb? Which would be the correct way to say it that I was taught in school. Um, or avez-vous la rhubarb? Which is very, very written and nobody actually uses avez-vous in uh, which is like, have you, have you the, some rhubarb? Nobody actually uses that in speech. A little bit in Quebec, but it's not very common. Uh, and escavuzade is a little bit more common. Like, is it that you have any rhubarb? But what they really wanted me to say, <laughs> and how I would, re people would look a little bit confused when I would ask that question. Um, and so what I figured out to say, you know, 10 vendors later, <laughs> was <laughs> le rhubarb, est-ce que vous en avez? <laughs> or le rhubarb, vous en avez? Like, the rhubarb, do you have any? And that's what spoken French wants to do. You have to foreground whatever that topic is, like rhubarb, and then put the rest of the sentence, the grammatical bits, uh, sort of down below to, um, to sort of on top of that. And that's oh not what God. you do in, in written French. The literal translation into English also is so, that just sounds so rude. Hey, rhubarb, you got any? <laughs> <laughs> but people, people would take like three seconds to parse me when I put rhubarb at the end of the sentence. But if I put Amazing. it in the beginning, they were like, oh yeah, no, sorry, it's not in Susan yet. And I'd be like, oh, well, I'll come back. <laughs> so yeah, I feel like you've brought up a really interesting like topic in in languages because I, I I guess that's not true just for French like I think there's lots of other languages too where it's like we learn this like school or classroom version mm -hmm. and then we're kind of left on our own to like go and make a fool of ourselves in front of a bunch of native speakers and realize that there's a different way of communicating yeah. um and on a regular basis and the thing that helped me there was the linguistic knowledge, which is, A, I learned the word diglossia and been like, oh, so maybe what's going on here is that the spoken and the written forms are different and it's not me that is wrong. <laughs> and secondly, that I knew I'd read somewhere once <laughs> that spoken French is topic comment and I knew what topic comment meant. And so I was able to sort of apply that very directly to the situation of like trying to ask vendors for rhubarb. <laughs> and so that's but you don't necessarily know like which bits of like, here are some ways that languages might be, are going to be directly applicable to you in that particular moment. But uh, acquiring that knowledge of here are some ways that languages can be uh, is an interesting endeavor. Um, do you also so think when, I suppose in, in how languages have changed as well over time, so that maybe, I don't know whether the, the written and the verbal forms of languages like, whether they all started in one place and then they diverted into two different things when we had the sort of advent of written language or something. But is that, how, how, how does this lead into the way that languages change over time? And because I, I feel like this is very topical at the moment, um, especially in the context of COVID, um, because lots of people have been talking in this last 12 months about like new language that has entered all of our vocabularies, whether it's in English or in other languages too. Um, and how the experience of this year has changed part of the, the way that we speak. And I think something that I have noticed is really, really interesting about linguistics is this, this study as well of how language changes over time. Um, 
maybe Gretchen first, just because I know I know you look a lot at the internet side of this. Maybe you could start with how, how that's do, really yeah. changing. <laughs> I, I think that one of the big things about writing is that writing sort of changes more slowly than speaking does because people get used to seeing uh, a certain form of writing. And writing is a technology, you know, like language is something that, that every group of humans we've ever encountered has. But writing is not something that every group of humans has had. There have been, you know, thousands of years of human history with no writing at all. And there's still uh, languages that aren't written down or not written down very much. Um, and so writing is a sort of technology and technology has its sort of its own inbuilt life cycle trends. And uh, the, so thinking about, uh, and one of the things that happens with writing is people get used to it, they get taught it in school, and they teach the next generation how they were taught in school. And so that's a lot of how you end up with things like silent letters. It's like many silent letters used to be pronounced. Uh, you know, like all of those silent K's in English, we used to just say like, kne for knee and knowledge. Uh, so like, knowledge and no is from the same root as like, gnostic, gnostic, agnostic, like that G and that K are the same from the same uh, root. Um, and so like the, the K is there because it used to be pronounced because it still is pronounced in certain types of contexts. Uh, same uh, root as Ken, like Kenning, which is more found in Old English. Anyway, um, beyond my Ken. So like a lot of stuff that's in writing reflects a sort of fossilized version of how a language used to be, uh, used to be pronounced. Uh, and it shows up, you know, it still gets written down, but that's, it's, it's sort of an, in, it's interesting for etymologists, and, but unless you have a spelling reform, which some languages do, and English has not particularly done, uh, you, you end up with all of these sorts of fossils, which like, and you end up having to like, kids have to learn etymology at the same time as they're learning how to write, or they have to learn all these sorts of arbitrary rules at the same time they're learning how to write. So yeah, it can be an interesting way of like, here's this, there's this process of change that happens in speech, where people will just stop pronouncing certain things, people will just stop doing things, or they'll start doing certain things one way, um, and stuff stuff just diverges because we we live in sort of squishy meat brains that are analog and have entropy, <laughs> and yeah. we're not just sort of like computers downloading copies from each other. And it's actually really neat that we recreate language from scratch in the minds of babies every generation. Like you don't just like plug in the little language module; like they kind of figure it out based on all of these sort of contextual things. Um, and they figure it out from scratch, but they figure it out a teeny tiny bit differently from how their their parents or their, you know, adults around them had it. And that's, you know, you accumulate that and you end up with language change. So there's that sort of gradual process of language change. And then there's also this very rapid, like, okay, we're going to introduce some new vocabulary. Everyone needs to talk about this vocabulary now. One of the things that I think is really interesting from the COVID side that has gotten less press is that in addition to like, okay, now we all have the word COVID um, you know, we have coronavirus and stuff like, I didn't know what a coronavirus was <laughs> this time last year. Um, and, um, the, but we also have a lot of words that were common words, but are now used more and used differently. So a word like mask, you know, a couple of years ago, people would have talked about masks. Like if you search for masks, I remember early on in the, in the pandemic, I think it was like February last year, I was searching for, uh, masks on Etsy or Google. Cause I wanted to like make my own mask. Cause I thought maybe that would be a good idea. Um, and Google was giving me back results about how to make like face masks, like, um, like for skincare, <laughs> like, you take your avocado and you take your egg and you take your oatmeal or whatever. And I was like, no Google. 
Uh, I don't want DIY, like, skincare masks. I'm sure those are great, but I don't think they'll protect me against COVID. <laughs> I think a lot of um, skincare makers are moving towards a Frenchified M-A-S-Q-U-E for oh. cosmetics now to help differentiate. That's that's very clever. I mean, they always have been because fanciness, but, like, I think this is just going to exacerbate that trend. That's, that's, that's very clever. Well, when I was putting some of my, like, masked picnics and so on that I had last summer on my calendar, I would put them as, like, oh, good, I'm going to have a mask with these people, and I would spell it M-A-S-Q-U-E just to feel fancy. But also, like, a lot of kids that I know, like, among their first words are mask. You know, mm. like, so you have a three-year-old or something, like, you know, cookie and banana and also mask. And, like, I don't know when I learned the word mask. Like, it wasn't that young, but it was probably in the context of Halloween or something. And it wasn't, like, you know, one of your first hundred words. But kids learn this word really early now. My three-year-old's obsessed with, um, oh, she's four now, but last year, um, sanitizer. That's one of her words from... Mm. from- <laughs> There's this really cute little uh, video of a, like, you know, probably one and a half, two-year-old walking around trying to make everything into sanitizer, like going up to a tree and trying to, like, pump the sanitizer from the tree, <laughs> going up to, like, a, a garbage can and trying to pump the sanitizer from that. It's, it's very cute. <laughs> uh, but it, it kind of reminds me of how, like, kids, the gesture that we use for a telephone has changed. Uh, so you guys are probably about our age. What gesture would you use for a telephone? I put my thumb and my little finger out and my other three fingers down and hold it up to my ear and my mouth. Yeah, exactly. The classic sort of banana phone, right? Yeah. Um, So that's like, but little kids nowadays put up like a flat hand against the side of the earth. (laughs) You're right. You're right. Or a little cupped hand. Or or even they hold it out in front of them. Like, yeah, but I'm sure there was some phone. point where parents were like, I can't believe kids these days are holding their pinky and their thumb out and not using two hands like a normal telephone I grew up with. <laughs> right. right. We have the mouthpiece and the earpiece as completely separate parts of the machine. <laughs> right. That, that <laughs> but and like, int- I guess interestingly, like we use words like to dial a number like mm-hmm. or to hang up. And really, like we don't do any of that anymore, whereas probably all of us can remember a time when you really did have to dial quite literally a number on the front of a telephone and um when you had to hang it up to turn it (laughs) off and end the call um but now those I mean we still do use that vocabulary but it I suppose it wouldn't surprise anybody if somehow that changed I know this is a visual language but those forms are known like when you have the floppy disk icon as skeuomorphs I don't know if that applies Mm. to words as well I guess they're just lexical fossils maybe they're skeuometaphors (laughs) Skewer leg because they're morphemes, like well, in a sometimes, very they're, sometimes they're they're metaphors or they're idioms or something like that. Yeah, I was thinking about. So I have a friend who's taken up ironworking uh, during the pandemic. You know, as you do, good and normal lockdown hobby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and he was talking about um, how it's a problem if you put too many uh, little bits of iron on the fire to heat up. And then sometimes they get overheated or they get too brittle or this is a problem. And it's like, yeah, it's a problem to put too many irons on the fire. If only some like historic person had come up with a metaphor for me <laughs> to explain oh, why this was a problem. Amazing. So <laughs> like, good. Wait, I just rediscovered where this came from. 
Because, mm. you know, we so, use a lot of, like, textile metaphors, all, the, all those obsolete stuff. This is yeah. one of the joys of, yeah, to be on tenterhooks is literally the tenting that you do while manufacturing leather goods. And mm. I love, like, this is one of the, like, once you realise language can't not change because that's how human brains work, you begin to realise what an amazing little history treasure trove uh, languages are. And language, like, English has a lot of documentation of this history so it's very accessible to us even though i have never tanned leather or made iron work um and have only the haziest memories of using a rotary phone um <laughs> knowing that like our language takes these little nuggets of history forward and to be honest i don't think we'll take a lot of the words that we're using in the pandemic forward um, you know, looking back at the 1918 pandemic, if anything about the Spanish flu situation, like we've remembered far too little of that period of history. But it will be very interesting to see what is uh, brought forward uh, in the next iteration of whatever English becomes. I have a, a COVID story from French if you want it. <laughs> yes, sure. please. It's been far too English so far. <laughs> yeah, well, so one thing that's been, you know, an interesting language controversy about COVID in, in French is the the question of whether COVID is le COVID or la COVID, is it is it masculine or feminine in French? Um, and the the argument for for whether for it should be feminine, one is you can make a, a phonetic argument, which is if you say la COVID and you really pronounce the D at the end, generally speaking, French words where you pronounce the consonant at the end, it sort of implies that there's a silent E to force the pronunciation of the consonant, and therefore mm. it must be feminine. Um, <laughs> Uh, but depending whether you think of it as an abbreviation for la maladie, the sickness of blah, 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 and maladie is feminine, that would also be an argument that is feminine. But if you think of it as an abbreviation for le virus, the virus, which is masculine, then <laughs> you want to do masculine. So there's been a lot of sort of back and forth about like, should it be le COVID or la COVID? Because are we analogizing based on what the acronym stands for or the phonetics of it or in the orthography because it ends with an orthographic consonant. It doesn't actually have any at the end, even though it's pronounced often like it does. That would be an argument that it would be masculine. But in that case, you probably wouldn't want to pronounce the D. So when you integrate a new word into a, a grammatical gender system, there then you arise this question of speakers do have intuitions, even as a second language speaker. I am firmly in the like la COVID camp. I <laughs> <laughs> that is where I am. But uh, about based on the, the phonetics and stuff like that, like what, what gender something falls in just based on analogy with other words and stuff like that. See, the, I, I am definitely in the le COVID camp, oh. um, purely because I work with a bunch of French people and I'm pretty sure that's what I heard everybody referring to it as right at the beginning. And so it's just kind of stuck. But this, so this brings up an interesting Quebec question. Maybe that's the rest of Canada thing because sometimes you have like, I feel like I've been hearing people say la COVID, so maybe that's like, Sometimes you have different genders in different uh, different areas, yeah. Yeah, um, but this brings up an interesting question because I guess this whole concept of like correct in inverted commas language, do we does it even matter? Like how <laughs> I don't know because I think my discussions I've had specifically on this le, la COVID question. Um, mm have been like, well, does anybody even really care? Like the Académie Française, which is the um, kind of linguistic authority in France, says one thing and then other people say another thing and then the media started using this thing and, you know, 
does it even really matter if everybody understands? I mean, I'd argue no, but. (laughs) (laughs) So in this case, like everyone can comprehend, like, even if it's not the gender you're used to having it as, it should still be accessible to you. What is the referent? But it is worth thinking about, especially in terms of COVID, because we want to make sure people are getting and comprehending uh, medical information. And there's been a lot of work uh, on a like a, a whole bunch of projects across the world trying to ensure that um, across the world's diversity of languages, people are getting accurate information about COVID. It's also just interesting. Uh, it kind of is interesting from a linguist perspective to see what are the reasons behind people's choices when it's this kind of coin toss situation. But if everyone can figure out what the referent is, I'd rather people just make sure they're getting any information about COVID that's accurate, uh, even if it's not the the gendered form they're used to. I think there's, like, it's, it's a shame that the way we often get taught language in schools is focused very narrowly on this idea of what's correct. Because I find a lot of people uh, feel like they need to apologize for being even playful with language or having fun with language or doing, like, weird and interesting things and you know I don't feel like people need to apologize for like oh I created a new recipe in the kitchen like oh no I've I you know I've I've done a terrible like grilled cheese sandwich because I put mustard in it it's like no if you like mustard put mustard in it it's fine you can innovate um but you know you can like you can you can decide to do different things with language you can just you can do innovative things and we celebrate innovation in a lot of different domains uh and this idea that like oh no you can't possibly be playful in language is a way no, no, like, let's, <laughs> let's be playful. That's fine. Uh, and I think that particularly people will like apologize for, to me as a linguist or they'll, they'll be like, but you're a linguist, you know, why are you doing so many weird things with language? And I'm like, I don't think you understand. Like if I'm in a group hanging out with, with linguists for a week or something at a conference, like I'll come out of that and my English will be like so weird and playful and creative and like everything is a verb and everything is a noun and everything can be adjectives if it tries hard enough uh, that like, you know, I can, I'm practically incomprehensible to other people <laughs> because you just feel like you have so much freedom to play around with things. And so, you know, I, I, I tell people like, look, you don't need my permission, but if it makes you feel better to have the permission of a linguist, like tell them I sent you, here's your certificate, your your language innovator card is in the mail, like you can have it, <laughs> I'll give them out for free. You don't need it from me, but if it makes you feel better, you can have it. Can that be likened to the way that um, people sometimes, I guess something we see in Australia a lot, and I think this would actually be pretty common in Canada too, when you've got a large migrant population or many people who are of a different cultural background with a different linguistic background also, um, within families that often happens, like you kind of have them developing almost their own set of like mixed vocabulary um using parts of one language and parts of another to like make things clearer or funnier or more interesting to themselves is that is that a similar kind of change there's a really great book that came out in the uk a number of years ago called familex which is about the sort of interesting family family uh words and they have like 57 words for the tv remote control because apparently this is like a very popular uh item to come up with with unique family vocabulary for and sometimes it's because there are other languages in the family's history uh and culture and sometimes it's just because you develop you know like thingamajig always means the remote control or something uh and i think it's i don't know if it's exclusively in that context but i think it's really great (laughs) 
families are a really fun place to play with language because you have this very high density of shared experience and so you can very easily build and entrench these uh, playful and creative ways of using language. This playful language tends to happen in in groups where we're spending lots of time with people and building these temporary rules um, for playing with language. I mean, we build these different rules for different groups of people, whether we're at school or we're at um, we're online, as Gretchen has spent a lot of time analysing. And I guess because someone else's family lect is so opaque to you, it's it's more obvious that that's happening there. And I think, like, yeah, it's 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 almost the rule rather than the exception that if you have a group of humans that spend some concentrated time with each other, they will come up with, you know, in-group ways of saying things. Like, if you've ever, like, joined someone else's friend group, maybe, like, you have a new partner or something and you've joined their group of friends and they've all been friends with each other since primary school or something, and they have all these in-jokes of, like, ah, oh, you just did a mic! Well, you know, what's doing a mic? Well, it's this thing Mike did ten years ago that everybody still remembers. <laughs> and you go out with this group of people and they decide to get pizza, and for them, pizza means a particular type of pizza from a particular pizza store, and you thought you were just getting generic pizza. Like, that's the, the long-term referent building. There's been so much gold in this episode <laughs> and um, I for one and have enjoyed chatting to you both so very much. So we can't thank you enough for joining us on Language Chats today. Thanks for having us. Thank yeah, you thank so, you so much, much for, for joining us. us. We have talked a couple uh, about uh, Lingthusiasm and Crash Course Linguistics mm-hmm. um, very briefly Um <laughs> There's also your book, Gretchen, because internet as well. Um, where is the best place for people to find out more about you both and about all the various projects that you are involved with? Uh, you could go to lingthusiasm.com, which might be the easiest place to go, which has links to the podcast, and you can kind of follow from there to other places. Or if you go to either of our websites, uh, which is just gretchenmcculloch.com or laurengonhere.com, right? <laughs> Yes, I was like, I'm not GretchenMcCulloch.com, that's you. I'm LaurenGorn.com. <laughs> um, but uh, I think I think either of those, we're also both on Twitter, uh, which is, I think, our, our chief social media platform. So we're at Lingthusiasm there. Uh, and that links to, to both of our individual, individual Twitter accounts as well. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Language Chats. This was a great episode to record and I hope you have all enjoyed listening to it. Um, As always, you can find all of our past episodes um, wherever you listen to your podcasts or online at languagelovers.com.au. And if you are on social media, then you can find us there as well. Um, On Instagram, we are languagelovers.au or on Facebook, you can find us at languagelovers.au. We also have a um, pretty fun community online via Facebook um, at our group, which is Language Lovers AU Community. So if you want to chat with some other um, language lovers in Australia or Australians who are abroad um, and you'd like to sort of meet us there, then, then do just join the group. We'd love to hang out with you. Catch you next time. See you next time.